you have your Bibles, if you'd open them to Ezekiel chapter 29. Of the 48 chapters we find in Ezekiel, eight of them deal with other nations, their neighbors, their enemies, foreigners. Last week we looked at two of the three chapters that dealt with Tyre. And I wanted to mention two things, one by way of review and the other to point out something that I didn't mention. First of all, that the king of Tyre, as the rest of the human race, was guilty of self-deification. Um, in chapter 28, verse 2, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas, but you are a man and not a God, though you think you're as wise as a God. As I mentioned last Sunday, I think that this is a common affliction of the human race ever since Adam and Eve, when it was promised that they would be like God. But we shouldn't imagine that in today's world, its form is as blatant as what we find with the king of Tyre. That is, people don't go around saying, I am a God. What we do find is that people take upon themselves the responsibility that is God's, and they take on the authority, which is God's. We heard this in a U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 2015, where Justice Kennedy delivered the majority opinion of the court. He said, the Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons within lawful realm to define and express their identity. Under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The fundamental liberties protected in this, uh, by this clause include most of the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. In addition, these liberties extend to certain personal choices central to individual dignity and autonomy, including intimate choices that define personal identity and beliefs. A lot of people were shocked by this, but this, in fact, was sort of a redoing of something that the Supreme Court had said in 1996, and in many ways, it is simply a reflection of what we find in society. That is to say, people have taken upon themselves that which is God's and his alone. Rebellion is taking on God's authority and his ways and saying, I know better and I will do what I want. Rather than saying, I'm a God or I sit on the throne of a God, they simply seek to act as a God. As God's people, we are to be obedient and we acknowledge that he is God. We obey his authority by his grace. We, are, we obey what he has set down. So that's the review part. The second thing is something I didn't mention last week. In chapter 28, verse 13, we read, you were in, garden, uh, in Eden, the garden of God. And while it is called the garden of God, if you look at the description, is it that of a garden? Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. In Genesis 2, it describes the Garden of Eden, and only two of these metals are mentioned. That is gold, f fine gold, the good gold that comes from there, and onyx. The focus in Genesis 2 is that it is a garden. 
Um, we will see that later in today's sermon. But here the focus is on these precious stones. Why? This, this doesn't, when you describe a garden, you don't normally think of finding turquoise or other gems. I'm not sure, okay, this is mere speculation, but I tend to think I'm right about this. The, the high priest was to wear a breastplate and it had 12 precious stones on it. On each one was engraved the name of a tribe, the 12 tribes of Israel. Nine of the 12 are mentioned here in Ezekiel 28 and in the order that you find them on the breastplate of the high priest. So what? Well, I would suggest to you that part of being made in the image of God as image bearers here on this planet, we are those who are to lead in worship. We are to lead the rest of creation in worship. That is to say, we are, in fact, to be priests. We read last week in the promise of forgiveness from 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Israel was told at Mount Sinai, when they went and the Ten Commandments were to be given to them, that hadn't happened yet, but the Lord said to them, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God has made human beings, in a sense, to mediate, to be the priest, to lead in worship here on this planet. And if this is what we were made for, then it is really a terrible thing to say, I am a God. No, you're supposed to be the priest that leads in worship of the true God. But then if you turn around and say, no, I, in fact, am a God, and I sit on the throne of a God, you, you really have gone off the deep end. Back to the foreign nations. Four chapters deal with six nations, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, and Sidon. That's the first of the eight. The last four chapters deal with Egypt. And as we saw at the end of the sermon, it's like, why does God spend so much time on this one nation? Some have said, well, it's because there was really bad blood between Israel and Egypt because the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites and they were there for four centuries and then God had to deliver them in a miraculous way. As I said last week, I don't think this is the case. Of the seven nations mentioned, that includes Egypt at the end, only Egypt is given hope of restoration. We'll see that later today. Israel had a long history with Egypt and it wasn't all bad. When Abraham and Sarah went to what we know as the promised land, there was a famine, they went to Egypt and there they were able to find food. Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, but God used him to preserve Egypt, and Egypt opened its doors to Jacob and his family, and they went there to live. In the struggles with uh, Assyria and Babylon, Judah looked to Egypt, and from time to time, Egypt, in fact, was a source of aid. But this made Egypt a temptation. Rather than looking to God, you get in trouble, hey, let's go call Egypt, and, and they will help us out in this situation. And then I mentioned again last Sunday, um, when Herod wanted to kill all the babies in Bethlehem, 
Joseph and Mary leave because an angel tells them to, and where do they go? They go to Egypt. So it isn't all negative, okay? And we need to keep that in mind. What we find in these four chapters are seven messages. Um, Only one of them is not dated. All the others are, in fact, dated. And it begins one year and two days after the siege of Jerusalem begins. If you would, look at chapter 29, uh, beginning in verse number 1. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak to him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you, you great monster lying among your streams. You say, the Nile is mine. I made it for myself. But I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your stream stick to your scales. I will pull you out from among the streams with all the fish sticking to your scales. I will leave you in the desert, you and all the fish of your streams. You will fall on the open field and not be gathered or picked up. I will give you as food to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air. The Nile River is one of the longest rivers in the world until fairly recently, Everyone said it was the longest, but then somebody discovered 75 more miles on the Amazon, and so fell into second place. It's 4,135 miles long. It flows from the south to the north, which is sort of counterintuitive for us. We imagine everything going south. It goes north, and it has two major tributaries. We have the Blue Nile and the White Nile. Um, The White Nile is considered to be the primary stream, but the Blue Nile, in fact, is uh, the source of most of its water. 80% of the water comes from the Blue Nile. Um, The two rivers meet in Khartoum in Sudan, and then they flow up to the Mediterranean. They flow up into Egypt. The ancient Egyptians did not have all this information. In fact, it's only in the 19th century that the beginnings of the Nile River were, in fact, discovered. David Livingston, the missionary, was one who discovered one of the sources. And yet, Pharaoh says, the Nile is mine, I made it for myself. Like, really? (laughs) You made the Nile? It sounds a lot like the king of Tyre, who says, I am a god, I do what gods do, And Pharaoh is saying, yes, I made this for myself. In response, the Lord refers to Pharaoh as a monster in the NIV, a dragon in the ESV and the King James. And I don't think this is intended to degrade Pharaoh, because we saw last week how much God cares for those who are made in his image. Some people think that this monster is, in fact, a crocodile, which there are tons of them in the Nile River, which would sort of make sense. And the phrase uh, that the fish of your streams would stick to your scale probably refers to the people of Egypt. So it's not just Pharaoh who's in trouble, but the people of Egypt as well. Now, in other parts of the Old Testament, we find references to Leviathan and Rahab as the mightiest among created creatures. And they are often seen as hostile. This is the case in Job chapter 41, when the Lord confronts Job. Job is asked three questions. What would you do if you were God, if you were in charge? Would you crush the proud? Would you create the useless, behemoth? 
And would you control the hostile, that is, the monster, that is, Leviathan? And in each case, power is the issue. And justice as well. For God, these are not contradictory qualities. They are, in fact, complementary qualities. If Job and we along with him would say, yes, yes, I would crush the proud. I would, in fact, not create the useless. And I would control the hostile. Then what we would have is a world without grace. But God is a God of grace. Now, you may say, Damon, I think you've gone off track here a bit. But consider two things. Job is only mentioned one time in the Old Testament outside the book of Job. And it's in the book of Ezekiel. Do you remember this from chapter 14? Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its men and their animals, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, They could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. I think this is significant, that this is the only place that Job is mentioned. Now, in the New Testament, Job is mentioned only in the book of James, but in the Old Testament, only here in Ezekiel. The second reason why I think that this is important to make this connection is that in Job chapter chapter 41, it says, can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook and or tie down his tongue with a rope can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook it's very similar to what we see the lord saying about pharaoh i will put hooks in your jaws i will pull you out from among your streams for all his claims of authority i made the nile this is mine in fact pharaoh will be judged for his arrogance and his self-deification so verses 1 through 5, we have the metaphor of, of Pharaoh being Leviathan, being a dragon, being a monster. In verses 6 through 9, we have the metaphor of Egypt being a land of reeds. Look, if you would, at verses 6 through 9. Then all who live in Egypt will know that I am the Lord. You've been a staff of reed for the house of Israel. When they grasped you with their hands, you splintered and you tore open their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and their backs were wrenched. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will bring a sword against you and kill your men and their animals. Egypt will become a desolate wasteland. Then they will know that I am the Lord because you said, the Nile is mine, I made it. Trusting in Egypt is like getting uh, something made of a reed or maybe bamboo of some type that isn't very thick, it isn't stable, and you lean on it. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. And in fact, it splinters and cuts through your head. And in this case, it goes through their shoulders. The Jewish people had counted on Egypt, even during this time. But in fact, they are a false hope. They put their weight on it, and it in fact did not help them. This is, in fact, what happened. We saw this in chapter 17, where Zedekiah broke his covenant with Babylon. I don't know if you remember that. And instead, he made a covenant with Egypt. And God judged him because he broke his covenant. We are to be people who keep our words, and Zedekiah did not. 
But why is Egypt to be judged? Zedekiah is the one who broke the covenant. So why is Egypt judged? Because you said the Nile is mine, I made it. And by the way, if people turn against God, they will just say ridiculous things. It's like, Pharaoh, do you even know where the Nile begins? And yet you claim to be the source of the Nile. It is the sin of self-deification. So, the word of judgment in verses 10 through 16. Therefore I am against you and against your streams, and I will make the land of Egypt a ruin and desolate waste. From Migdal to Aswan, as far as the border of Cush, no foot of man or animal will pass through it. No one will live there for 40 years. I will make the land of Egypt desolate among devastated lands, and her cities will lie desolate 40 years among ruined cities. And I will disperse the Egyptians among the nations and scatter them through the countries. Here's the promise of hope. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. At the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the nations where they were scattered. I will bring them back from captivity and return them to upper Egypt, the land of their ancestry, and there they will be a lowly kingdom. Upper Egypt, by the way, was known as the land of reeds. And so in the previous passage, when it talks about them being uh, uh, a staff of reeds, it's sort of a play on words. I always get mixed up on this. I have to write it down in my notes. But Lower Egypt is what we would call Upper Egypt. We're, we've got it backwards. Where Cairo, the part near the Mediterranean Sea that goes, that is Lower Egypt. Upper Egypt is in the south. Okay? This, in fact, is where Egypt began, the Nile River. Okay? The designations, I think, may be counterintuitive, uh, but they f- reflect the flow of the river from the upper, upper Egypt. It flows down to lower Egypt and empties into the Mediterranean. Verse 15, it will be the lowest of kingdoms and will never again exalt itself above the other nations. I will make it so weak that it will never again rule over the nations. Egypt will no longer be a source of confidence for the people of Israel, but will be a reminder of their sin and turning to her for help. Then they will know that I am the sovereign Lord. So I said there would be restoration, but not what Egypt wanted. They were not going to return to their former glory. They would, what they would get would be less than what they wanted. Then in verses 17 through 21, we are told who will be the instrument of this judgment, and it's Nebuchadnezzar. Um, we saw last week that Nebuchadnezzar besieged Tyre for 13 years. And you know, after 13 years, uh, they made a deal where Tyre would be a vassal. They would pay tribute to Babylon. Um, so he's got all these guys, and what's he going to do? You've got all these soldiers. We're in the area. What should we, hey, let's go down to Egypt. And that's precisely what happened. He wasn't able to take it, even though in verse 18, every head was rubbed bare and every shoulder made raw head rubbed bared from the helmets that the soldiers wore, their shoulders rubbed raw from making these siege engines and bringing them up and throwing these rocks at Tyre. Instead, the Lord gave him Egypt. Egypt would be his. Um, 
Verse 18, son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, drove his army into a hard campaign against Tyre. As I said, every head was rubbed bare and every shoulder made raw. Yet he and his army got no reward from the campaign he led against Tyre. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to give Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will carry off its wealth. He will loot and plunder the land as pay for his army. Now, they didn't get what they wanted out of Tyre. They'll get it out of Egypt. I have given him Egypt as a reward for his efforts because he and his army did it for me, declares the sovereign Lord. Now we come to chapter 30. And chapter 30 continues talking about the judgment. But you will notice that it is referred to as a lament. And we should not be surprised at this. It is the only oracle that is not dated. There are three important things to see here. First of all, the day of the Lord is mentioned. If you read beginning in Isaiah and go all the way to Malachi, the day of the Lord is a recurring phrase. And usually people in that time and even today, often they think of the day of the Lord as something that will happen to the people of God, either judgment or deliverance. But it is specifically for the people of God, uh, Israel or the church. Here, it includes Egypt. Um, If you look at the first three verses, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, wail and say, alas for that day, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near, a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. If you read Amos, if you read other prophets, you find, in fact, that the day of the Lord is a time of judgment against his people. But here it is used against Egypt. That is to say, God doesn't just sort of focus on Israel. He's just their God, and he doesn't really care what other people are doing. His judgment, in fact, will include others as well. Um, Joel chapter 2, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill, Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And we have the same language that is used for Egypt. The second thing we should notice in chapter 30 is that Egypt's allies will be punished as well. So uh, it will come against, verse 4, against Cush, verse 5, Cush, Put, Lydia, and all Arabia, Libya. The people of the covenant land will fall by the sword along with Egypt. So it's not just Egypt, but all her allies, all her friends will also be judged. People shouldn't say, well, that's Pharaoh. He's the guy who said he made the Nile. Those who allied themselves with him would also be judged. And then the instrument of judgment is mentioned by name. Verse 10, it's Nebuchadnezzar. We know that already, but here in this lament... They are told specifically, um, I will put an end to the hordes of Egypt by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, after this, in verses 13 through 19, at least eight cities are mentioned by name. And I find this significant in that it isn't just sort of, you all are toast. 
judgment is coming, Nebuchadnezzar is coming, and you all are going to be judged. He gets very, very specific. So the cities of Memphis, of Zoan, of Thebes, Pelusium, uh, Heliopolis, the city of the sun, uh, Bubastis, uh, Tapanes, all these cities are mentioned by name. The judgment is coming on them. And then in verses 20 through 26, the judgment is described in personal terms, in physical terms. Um, and that is that Pharaoh's arms will be broken. If you would look at verse 20 here in chapter 30. In the 11th year, in the first month, on the seventh day, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It has not been bound up for healing or put in a splint so as to become strong enough to hold the sword. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I will break both his arms, the good arm as well as the broken one, and make the sword fall from his hand. I will disperse the Egyptians among the nations and scatter them through the countries. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand, but I will break the arms of Pharaoh, and he will groan before him like a mortally wounded man. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh will fall limp. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and he brandishes it against Egypt. I will disperse the Egyptians among the nations and scatter them through the countries. Then they will know that I am the Lord. A number of times, particularly in the book of Exodus, we find that the arm of the Lord is used as an expression of God's power that he, in fact, went against Egypt. Now, here in Ezekiel, the power of Egypt and Pharaoh is seen as an arm, but it's a broken arm. His sword arm is broken, and no one put a splint on it. It wasn't bound up. The bones are not going to mend correctly. It will never be able to hold the sword again. And then, if that's not enough, God would then, in fact, break his good arm, the shield arm, and Pharaoh would be conquered. Babylon would come in through Nebuchadnezzar and take over. There's one thing, though. We haven't read the whole chapter, but we've seen it, and I, I would encourage you to go back and read it. At least seven times, at least seven times as God proclaims judgment coming, we read these words, then they will know that I am the Lord. God's dealings with human beings have a purpose, and it is that they will come to know that he is the Lord. That even his judgment is, in fact, an act of grace. We think of judgment, punishment, as something just terrible, something to be afraid of, rightfully so, but it has a healing purpose. It is that people will come to know that he is the Lord. One more chapter, and then we will be finished today. Chapter 31. Here, Egypt is described as the great cedar tree. The chapter can be divided into three parts. A poem about the great tree to which Egypt is compared. And then an oracle about how Egypt will fall. And then thirdly, how Egypt will descend into Sheol, into the world below. The first part, a poem of a great tree, 
is about Assyria. This is weird. Assyria was a world power, but it hasn't been for 70 years. Assyria was conquered by Babylon. So it's kind of weird. In fact, there are scholars who say, no, no, no. Um, Ezekiel made a mistake that he shouldn't have spoken about Assyria because Assyria is gone. What's he doing? Well, a comparison is being made. Look, if you would, we'll begin at verse number one. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, who can be compared with you in majesty? That is, who are you like in your greatness? You say, we're a great Egypt. Who are you like? Consider Assyria, once a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches overshadowing the forest. It towered on high, its top above the thick foliage. And it goes on to describe the greatness and the beauty. Um, and that's one of the things that's really in- incredible about this poem, is it describes the beauty of this world power. You don't usually think of world powers as being beautiful. But look, if you would, at verses 8 and 9. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor could the pine trees equal its boughs, nor could the plane trees compare with its branches. No tree in the garden of God could match its beauty. I made it beautiful, this is the Lord speaking, with abundant branches. The envy of all the trees of Eden in the garden of God. And once again, the garden of Eden is mentioned. Actually, it's mentioned here four times, twice as the garden of God and then twice as Eden. Um, What's going on here? We have this lovely description of this incredible world power. But where's Assyria? Where's Assyria? Assyria's gone. Assyria was conquered. And the point, I think, of this chapter is You're never too great to fail. If you're great, don't say, well, we could never be conquered. We could never fall. Guess what, Egypt? Look at Assyria. They're not around anymore. And Egypt, for all your greatness, your magnificence, you will, in fact, be destroyed. So beginning in verse number 10, um, we have an oracle about the fact that Egypt will fall. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, because it towered on high, lifting its top above the thick foliage, and because it was proud of its height, I handed it over to the ruler of the nations for him to deal with according to its wickedness. I cast it aside. And the most ruthless of four nations came, uh, cut it down, and left it. Its boughs fell on the mountains and in all the valleys. Its branches lay broken in all the ravines of the land. All the nations of the earth came out from under its shade and left it. It, Assyria had been this incredible cedar tree, this incredible power, and nations rested under its shade. It was higher than all the other nations. It was magnificent. It was great. And what happened? God handed it over to other nations. And the great power that was Assyria fell. No kingdom, no nation should ever say, 
we cannot fall. We are too great. Look at Assyria. And then in the third part, what happened to Assyria will happen to Egypt, beginning at verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day it was brought down to the grave, I covered the deep springs with mourning for it. I held back its streams and its abundant waters were restrained. Because of it, I clothed Lebanon with gloom and all the trees of the field withered away. I made the nations tremble at the sound of its fall when I brought it down to the grave with those who go down to the pit. Then all the trees of Eden, the choicest and best of Lebanon, all the trees that were well watered were consoled in the earth beneath. Those who lived in its shade, its allies among the nations, had also gone down to the grave with it, joining those killed by the sword. Which of the trees of Eden can be compared with you in splendor and majesty? Yet you too will be brought down with the trees of Eden to the earth below. You will lie among the uncircumcised with those killed by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his hordes, declares the sovereign Lord. You know what happened to Assyria? It's going to happen to you, Pharaoh. It's going to happen to you, Egypt. You thought, I can never fall. I can never fail. Without being overly dramatic, do we imagine that our country can never fall? That we will never be taken over by another power? Egypt thought that, and God says, no, in fact, what happened to Assyria, it's going to happen to you. So now we come to chapter 32, which, Lord willing, we will look at next week. And what is chapter 32? It's a lament. Do you think, do you imagine, you know, people say, the God of the Old Testament, he's cruel and vindictive and mean and angry. But Jesus in the New Testament is all about love. I think what we see here in Ezekiel is that God does in fact judge people, but he grieves, he mourns. He doesn't rub his hands together and say, oh, I'm finally going to get these guys. He in fact laments. These, these are image bearers. These are those made in God's image. He does not delight in judging them. So what do we take away from this? Um, three things that I'd have you consider. First of all, self-deification is in fact hostility against the Creator. You know, we didn't see this so much with the King of Tyre. He simply said, I am a God, I sit on the throne of a God. But we see it with Pharaoh when he said, I made, I, the Nile is mine, I made it. He is, con- he is then compared to Leviathan, that which re- represents hostility against God. So when you cannot be neutral when it comes to God. Either you obey him or you're in rebellion against him. You can't have this middle ground where, yeah, I, whatever, I, you know, I'm not for him, I'm not against him, just sort of do what I want to do. Uh, no. When you take on the responsibility and the authority of God, you are hostile to God. You are in rebellion against God. And one would say you are Leviathan. 
The second thing that I'd have you consider is that Eden is mentioned again, that this is where it all started. This is where we were created. And this is why we have value. We have value in God's eyes. Not only because we are made in his image, that's, that's, the, big, that's the big one, but as those made in his image, we are priests. We are a nation of priests. By the way, you have creation, fall, redemption, right? Why is it in redemption we are called priests? Because in creation, that's what God made us to be. We were to lead in the worship. We were to sort of lead all of creation in worshiping God. Sadly, because Adam and Eve sinned, we lost that, and God, in the process of redemption, we have the Levites, um, and then we have Jesus, who is our prophet, priest, and king, and now we are priests as well. But creation has not given up on worshiping God. Creation, Paul tells us in Romans 8, is groaning. It's waiting for redemption. And we should be ashamed that creation worships God without us leading the way. We, in fact, are God's people, and we are to lead the world in worship. And the third thing is we should never imagine that, we can, that we're too great to fail. We saw this with the king of Tyre, and we see it with Pharaoh of Egypt. We've seen it in this country with regard to businesses, that the government needs to bail out a business because it's too big to fail. Um, No. Egypt, remember what happened 70 years ago to Assyria? It's going to happen to you. And as human beings, for some reason for some strange reason, we think we're invulnerable, that nothing can touch us. It's, we have somehow lost our minds if we think that. And yet the judgment of God, I, I must stress, is done in grace. It's done in grace. And he doesn't do it joyfully. He weeps, he laments. And we're like, God, why do you even care? This, these aren't the Israelites. These aren't your chosen people. These are just like everybody else. God cares for all of his creatures and particularly for those who are made in his image. And how gracious he is. He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. Uh, to the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is a God of all grace. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your strength as we struggle through the book of Ezekiel. Much of it sounds so foreign to us. And yet I think it is still necessary and practical today that we remember who we are. We remember who our fellow human beings are, those made in your image. And we are called to be priests, to lead in worship, to lead all of creation in worship. That's what we were created for. And when people turn away from you, 
whether they recognize it or not, they are doing so in hostility. They are like Leviathan, the great sea monster who seeks to oppose God. Even as your children, we find ourselves from time to time somehow trying to usurp your authority. May we be obedient sons and daughters and recognize that we're not God, you are. Living in what is considered the superpower of our age, perhaps we carry the spirit of invulnerability that we are too great, we are too big to fail. We forget that we are not God, our nation is not God, but you are. those who are in positions of authority you put there we pray that you would give them wisdom and direct them but may we never forget that this is your world we are your people we've gone through a lot today Father and I pray by your grace we would retain a small part of it at least May your spirit cause us to think on these things and meditate on them in the days to come. May we have a sense of the presence of your spirit with us as we walk through the world this week. We thank you for your love, supremely in sending your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.